Nice to see you here. We're continuing in our series on James, and as you may have learned from the responsive reading, we're in James chapter 3, talking about the tongue. In chapter 2, last week, we heard that James says that genuine faith should produce works, works of righteousness and works of faith. In chapter 3 now, James is going to say that mature faith should produce words. So if you have genuine faith producing works, it should also produce certain words. And if I can switch from the normal metaphor of a building inspector that James is examining the building of the church to, a, to the metaphor of a doctor examining a patient, it's remarkable to me what doctors learn about our health from looking in our mouths. There is one time in polite society when you are allowed to stick your tongue out at a very respectable person. It's when the doctor says, you know, say ah, exactly. Then you get to stick your tongue out at a doctor. It's great. Then he pokes and prods around in your mouth with a popsicle stick that presumably he's already greedily eaten before you arrived. (laughs) I kid you not, as a small child, I wondered who got to eat all the popsicles to provide the doctor with sticks. And then I learned they were called tongue depressors, and then I was depressed because I had a career opportunity snatched away from me (laughs) of being the medical popsicle eater. But it is also a bit amazing what the doctor learns by examining my tongue. Presumably, the doctor can discern all sorts of internal, previously hidden maladies and illnesses in the rest of my body by examining my mouth. As as if a sickness not otherwise visible makes itself known right there on the surface of my tongue that the doctor can see. The condition of my mouth, apparently, is the giveaway to the condition of what is inside me. Well, James, again, having declared that it is what is unknown and unseen about our faith is made known in our works, now says, just like your doctor What is maybe unseen and perhaps unknown in the genuineness of your faith is made very apparent by what is coming out of your mouth. And it will tell us how mature our faith is, just as a doctor can examine our mouth and tell us how healthy we are. So both works and words reveal what otherwise might be hidden. So we get this practical test of the soundness of our faith from James, our maturity, our transformation into the image and likeness of Jesus. What is it that our tongues are telling other people about our faith? What is it telling people about our maturity as Christians? Judging by our words, have we grown into mature Christians or are we still immature, very childish Christians? And James has some thoughts on that and why it matters, and that's what we'll be looking at in James 3, uh, verses 1 to 12. And I'll just pray before we begin. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this book of James that is examining our faith, and we thank you for his inspection and your spirit's inspection of us. We pray now as we look into your word that it would edify us, it would do more than just instruct and edify us, it would actually transform us. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. So I won't read the whole text. It's James 3, 1 to 12, and I'll just work through it kind of section by section. Uh, 
begins this way, and he begins talking about maturity. This is the context that he sets it in. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. And this is very typical of James's style. He begins a teaching segment often with an imperative or a declaration or a command. And so he just says, not many of you should become teachers. This is his declaration that he is then going to uh, follow up with instruction. And and as James looks across the early church, uh, he's the head of the church in Jerusalem. The church is scattered in persecution. This is the early to mid-40s A.D., very, very early in the young church. And he's looking across the church... And he's looking at the people that are in that church, and he looks at the state of that early church and the condition that it's in, and he says, you know what, there's not a lot of you who I see who should be taking on a teaching role in the church. For you know that we who teach have an even stricter judgment waiting for us. So James is just cautioning them, you know, seeing what I see amongst the congregations, there's not a lot of you that should be eager to be teaching. And in your life groups this week, you're going to have some discussion questions to explore more fully the idea of who ought and who ought not to be teachers and why. But we'll simply note here that James seems to think, as does Paul, that teachers are identifiable within the church. There are people who are teachers that if I was to say to any congregation anywhere, this one or any other one, hey, could everybody stand up right now and point to the two or three teachers that are in your church? And everybody would stand up and they'd point in certain directions and you would quickly see that most of the congregation would know who the teachers are. And so James says in the church there are teachers and he identifies as one. It's an identifiable group within the church who are teachers. It's a a group that he belongs to. He says we who teach, we teachers. And so you're going to talk about that in your life group about teaching. But, But James says if you're thinking you might want to join that group of teachers to be a teacher... Keep in mind a couple of things. First, you're going to be judged differently than others. And also, and this is the main point of the text here, you especially shouldn't aim to be a teacher if you often stumble or sin or make mistakes with your words. Because if you can't control your tongue, then you obviously shouldn't teach. And if you can't control your tongue, it's apparent you're not able to control the rest of your life either. And don't get too hung up on the word perfect here. The Greek teleos means complete or fully grown or mature. So James is saying in this introduction that if if you were to never make a single mistake with your words, then you would indeed be completely mature. You would be completely grown up. Our words then are sort of a measuring stick of maturity, like pencil marks on the kitchen door trim. You, You can see the growth of somebody by how high the pencil mark goes. And for Christians, you can judge the maturity of a Christian by the mark of their words. If you can't tell by a person's words that they are mature, then they should certainly not be teachers and they have bigger problems. And that creates the context then for James to set the stage of maturity is what he's talking about. He's talking about Christian maturity, people who are teachers, people who control their tongue, people who can be marked by their words. Now, why are our words so important? Why are they the kitchen door trim marker of our maturity? Why is it that words are what James singles out here? Why genuine faith must not only produce new works, as James has already said in chapter 2, but must also produce new words. You cannot genuinely encounter the gospel and come away with your mouth unchanged. 
And James elaborates with some remarkable illustrations that most of us remember if we've read James. His illustrations are so remarkable, they stand out to us. But remember, his illustrations are lessons, and so don't, get, don't remember the illustration and forget the lesson. The point is the lesson. The first illustration is to indicate that words are important, and why he's focusing on words is because they're forceful. Words are able to set the direction of our life. He says, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. And so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts great things. And so James's first two illustrations emphasize how forceful our tongues are, or how forceful our words are, despite their tiny size. He says a horse, especially like an agricultural kind of draft horse or, or like a war horse that pulls chariots that James probably had in mind here, are ridiculously strong compared to us. I mean, they can pull tree roots out of the ground or they can pull a dozen archers on a war wagon. But just a tiny piece of metal in the horse's mouth means we can guide it anywhere we want or take a ship. It could displace a 100 tons. It could carry thousands of barrels of produce and yet a tiny rudder steers it before a gale. And the tongue is like that. Our words are like that. Our tongue boasts or our tongue brags, James says, about what it can steer and control and direct, completely out of proportion to what it should be able to according to its size. Well, what about your life? Have you seen someone's words or your own words set the direction of something very significant in your life around you? Maybe you've even been shocked or dismayed how just a few words, just a tiny phrase out of place in a specific moment set a huge part of your life in a totally different direction, like you just steered the tanker into the dock, right? Like you're just plowing through all the other sailboats there because that word just turned the whole thing. And that's how our tongue is like. It can steer huge segments, the whole sphere of our life, our career, our marriage, our family. The biggest areas of our life are completely out of proportion, controlled by this little tongue. And our tongue can steer which direction those things go. Maybe into a reef or maybe onto rocks. Our words set the direction of all those big, powerful parts of our life, like what direction our marriage is going. And I know every married person here is aware of this, too aware of this, perhaps, from their own experience. Do you know the power of our words in, the, in our marriage and the direction that it is headed is actually measurable down to a ratio? John Gottman, a researcher in the 1970s, studied thousands of hours of married interactions to determine that words were the clearest measure of marital health. Specifically, without a minimum of a 5 to 1 ratio of positive to negative verbal interactions, a marriage is 90% likely to fail. If the ratio of positive to negative interactions was 5 to 1 or greater, it was almost impossible for that marriage to fail. So Gottman quantifiably observed what James knew. Words set the direction of the biggest and strongest forces of our lives. Whether it's marriage, work, friendships, our whole life is steered most significantly by our words. And that's sobering. 
That's a sobering reality to think about that, but it's also encouraging because if we want to focus on the gospel transforming one thing in our life, we could focus on our tongue first. If you're a new believer or maybe an old believer who hasn't learned this yet, you can just pray to God, God, I need your gospel transformation to start here with my tongue because it's with my tongue that is going to start to transform everything else. If you need to saturate any part of your life with the gospel, then start saturating your speech with the gospel. If we take to heart this biblical truth that our words matter, then we can steer these enormous strong forces in our life that we seem powerless to affect. We feel like we're powerless to affect our marriage, powerless to affect our relationships, our friends, our careers, what our coworkers think. We think we're powerless to affect things. But James says here, the tongue is powerful. That's bad, but it's also good because with gospel transformation and with the wisdom of God and the word of God, if we can control and transform our tongues by his spirit and by his grace, then we can steer all of those things back onto the right path. By letting our tongues be the first thing that's transformed and be then workers of preservation of our marriage and healing of our relationships and the preservation of our friendships, rather than causing their destruction, they are actually for their healing. So just like a bit can steer a horse that's far too strong for us to control, just like a rudder can steer a ship that is far too big for us to get our arms around and shift, our words can actually get control of forces that we feel are too big for us and too strong for us. By allowing the gospel and allowing the spirit to work through our words, we actually can gain control of our life. Gospel-saturated, spirit-led words bring these parts of our lives back under control again and set them on hopeful and healthful directions. But James goes on with another illustration and a warning about the importance of our words. Not only are they tiny and steer big things, they're forceful, but they are flammable. They can destroy our entire life. He says, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, A world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set set on fire by hell. So James says our words are flammable. Not only do they steer our life and set the direction of our life, they have the power to destroy our life entirely. And he uses a couple of very interesting words here. He says the tongue is a world of unrighteousness. So it's not just a tiny tongue compared to a big horse. It's not just a tiny tongue compared to a large ship. It's a tongue compared to the world. It's the tongue is a whole world of unrighteousness. And in fact, the world that that the word that he uses there is actually um, he says the entire course of life, and it's the unrighteousness of our world. It is set on fire by hell. And the word that he uses there for world is cosmos, spelt with a K in the Greek. But in English, we just change the K into a C, and we use the same word, cosmos. And, and when, when you think of the cosmos, it's like everything. The, the tongue can set everything on fire. Your whole universe can get set on fire, can be destroyed by the tongue. And, and he wants to clarify, it's not just any fire. It's set on fire by hell. And that word is Gehenna. It's the Greek word. It's only used 12 times in the New Testament, this Greek word Gehenna. It's used one time here by James. It's used 11 times by Jesus. So you don't pull out Gehenna as a word unless you have something very serious to say. And James has something very serious to say here. He says, this is what our tongues can do. They can set your whole world on fire. 
And not just any fire, it's an unrighteous fire. It's not just an unrighteous fire, it's the fire of hell. It will destroy you down to your very soul. That's what your, word, that's what your words can do. When Jesus uses this word in Matthew and Mark, he describes the hell of fire, the eternal fire, the unquenchable fire, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So as I said, you don't pull this word out, Gehenna, unless you mean it. And James wants his readers to take note. Words matter in the Christian life. If you are a Christian and you think you can just say things carelessly or say things thought or that your words, you know, don't really hurt anybody, James wants to make very clear here that when you are a Christian, words are super important. In a Christian marriage, when we are Christians at work, as we are Christians in relationship with each other, as we are Christians in relationship with the world, as we, as we are Christians that engage with friends and families and co-workers, when we speak to anyone, James says, our words are important. They matter. Jesus says in Matthew, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance or the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. See, James was listening into his brother here. He was listening to his brother's teaching. He didn't believe in his brother when he was alive, but you know, after he saw him resurrected, James was a believer. And he remembered these lessons. And he remembered Jesus said, words are important. And James says, words are important. You see, this is why James started out by saying, not a lot of you should be eager to be teachers. Because teachers will be judged by their words and judged more harshly. And here's the baseline of judgment described by Jesus. Everyone, teachers and everyone else included, will have to give an account for every single careless word they speak. This is the baseline. This is the easy judgment. This is getting, just getting judged on careless words. So, so what judgment is coming for our intentional words? Or how about the words we spoke as teachers? Or how about the words we actually thought up the night before and then unloaded on somebody? How about those words? I mean, if we're going to be judged for careless words, we're definitely going to be judged for the intentional ones. What about when we use words to manipulate the truth in order to serve our own selfish desires? I mean, forget the careless words. I've got a truckload of deliberately malicious words that I'm going to be accountable for in my life. Manipulative words, hurtful, even abusive words that I'm going to have to account for. And I would not be able to account for them. I would not be able to face that judgment except for the grace of God and the work of Jesus. I know that in the judgment to come, I'm going to escape because of what Christ has done on the cross alone, not because of what I've done. It will be, as Paul says of the judgment in 1 Corinthians 3, if the work that anyone has built, or you could say the words that anyone has said on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, anyone's words are burned up, lots of mine, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through a fire. I expect on the day of judgment I will be smoking. I will not merely be smoldering, I will be smoking as my works and words are burned up. <laughs> but by the grace of God I will be saved. Amen. Amen. I will be smoking on that day. I think that day of judgment is going to be a day of tremendous contrast. I think for all of us, both with our works and our words, 
and for me it's a lot of my words, is going to be a day that begins with the deepest and most horrifying regret for our sin. And then instantly, the sweetest and most beautiful relief of God's grace. And that goes on for eternity. It's going to be a good day. Some of us are going to be a little smoldery (laughs) when we go through that judgment. Because our works and our words are going to have to get burned up. And we're going to give an account for every careless word. And we're definitely going to give an account for every intentional word. So James says, words are important. In just two verses, James will explain why our words matter so much. How we talk to our spouse, our kids, our friends, our sibling, or anyone else. Why our words carry such weight. But first, James has one more point to make. The point he wants to make is that no human being can solve this problem because although our tongues can control everything else, we are not humanly able to control our tongue. He says, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So James says, You don't have the answer to your own problem. No human being can tame the tongue. We can claim... tame tigers, we can tame elephants, we can tame dolphins, we can tame whales, you name it. I've seen tamed goldfish. There's nothing on this planet, it seems, that we can't tame. We can tame it all. It's amazing what we can tame. But your tongue, you can't do it. And I know you've tried to do it. I know you have. Because I know a lot of you are too much like me. You've gone into relationship situations, whether it's in marriage or family or otherwise, and you've even premeditated with the best intentions. You have sworn to yourself, you are not this time going to let your mouth mess things up. And within five minutes of walking into that confrontation, you are just unloading all of the ammunition that you have in your relationship gun out through your mouth. And you're just pounding your poor spouse or brother or sister or friend or whatever into the ground with words that are like artillery shells. And you've lost control. And they're loud and they're hurtful. And they're all over the place. And you know you've done it. Or maybe you're not the direct conflict type. Maybe I'm just talking about myself because I can go in like double barrel. Maybe you are not that kind of word type of user. So you just casually let certain bits of information drop around town or at family events or when you're alone with others. For you, you use your words more like a guerrilla war. It's sneak attacks from behind cover so that you don't have to face any return fire. It's just a war of attrition to wear them down and recruit people to your cause so that you can manipulate the politics of the situation in your favor. And you do your damage from a distance. We've done it with our words And in our own power, we can't stop it. And in your lives right now, words that you have said in the past or words that you're saying even just in these last few days are setting the course of your marriage or your career or your friendships in a certain direction. Or they're setting those things on fire. And James says here, you can't get control of it on your own. You cannot tame your own tongue. If we have to put an end to the damage done by our words, by our own power, we can't do it. But that's where the gospel shows up. God can do it. That's the good news of the gospel, is that we don't transform ourselves. We don't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We don't grit our teeth and clench our fists and say, I'm just going to try harder to be a good person. 
The gospel says Christ has come to do what we cannot do to get victory over sin and death. The power of Christ and his righteousness transform us. God can tame your tongue. God can put out the fires in your life. God can change the direction that your marriage or your work or your relationships are going. And he can even do it through your words because he can transform your tongue. If you will allow how you speak to be put under the submission of God's will, then he will actually work miracles in your life through your own tongue. And you'll be amazed at what the grace of God can do, how he can tame your words. And in so doing, tame your emotions and tame those relationships and put out those fires. King David knew the power of words. It was his royal request that called Bathsheba to his bedroom. And it was his command that had Uriah killed in battle. King David knew the power of words. They were the power of life and death. And he was a poet and a songwriter. Words were his business and his pleasure. And he wrote in Psalm 14, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. It's to God that we turn to for power over what we are powerless against. If our words are unrighteous, then we seek out the righteousness of God's word. And so James has set the stage now in his teaching on the tongue. Our words steer the greatest and mightiest forces of our life, our marriage, our work, our relationships. Our words, if are unrighteous or selfish or malicious, will burn our whole world down into the hells of fire. And he says, we can't tame them ourselves. But we're not done yet. Why are words so important, though? Why all this teaching on words? We still haven't got to the understanding of why they are so important. What is the danger of words so specifically devastating? Why do they hurt so much? James doesn't talk this way about other parts of our life as Christians, like charity or our career or even prayer. So there's something theological. There's a theological underpinning for the seriousness of our words and why James needs to teach us this. And that's what he gets to in verse 9. This is the theological foundation. With it, our tongue, with our words, we bless our Father, our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. That's like the understatement of the Bible, I think, right there. Ought not to be so. This is why words are so devastating. And because as Christians, we claim to, and we do, profess a blessing on God. In other words, we agree that God's ways are right. We agree that God is pure, and that he is righteous, and that he is gracious, and that he is merciful, and that we love him, and he loves us, and we worship him, and we praise him. And as Christians, we wholeheartedly say and affirm and embrace those things. And then at the same time as that is happening, James says, we turn around with our words, and we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. This is the theology that's at play. This is the theological underpinning of James's argument. Do not ever underestimate the importance of the image-bearing of God in all people. This is a fundamental and foundational ethic of Christian behavior. All the theology of the Bible can be found in the first book of Genesis. And in a very real sense, the rest of the scriptures is an explanation of the implication of what Genesis has already taught us. And this is what Genesis teaches us. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And this is where James goes to, to say this is why words are important. Because when you are abusing other people, you are abusing image bearers of God. 
And this fundamental truth guides the Christian ethic on race, gender, abortion, medical assistance in dying, recreational drug use, our diet, our sex lives. It informs our politics. It informs the laws we pass and support. It informs our views on justice, rehabilitation. It shapes our economics, our charity, our views on dignity, worth, protection, and care for all people in all circumstances. This fundamental theological underpinning that everyone is an image bearer of God can never be ignored and never be forgotten. If you get one thing today, get this. Everyone is an image bearer of God, and you better view them that way all the time. And James pulls it out here. He pulls it out here to say, this is why our words matter. This is why it is important for how Christians talk, how we use our words. Because you aim those words of you at a person, you are aiming them at an image bearer of God. You think you can say one thing to God in church and then another thing to someone else at work or in the car on the way home? You cannot. Jesus says it this way. And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers or sisters, you did it to me. You see, Jesus is saying the same thing. You see, you did it to one of them, you're doing it to me. (laughs) Because the image bearing of God is a theological underpinning you can never, ever ignore. Now, unlike God, your husband or your wife or your coworker or your sibling may need to be confronted. They may have sinned against you. They may have caused you hurt. They may be acting selfishly or maliciously, but that does not excuse you. When you speak to them, you are speaking to an image bearer of God. And even if they have sinned against you, even if they have offended you, even if they are acting selfishly, they must receive from you the dignity and value and care that all image bearers of God are due, without exception. And if, here's the more likely scenario, it's you who are acting angrily, or it is you who are acting hurtfully, it is you who are acting selfishly or maliciously, in your own right towards them, if your words are undermining them and wounding them and humiliating them and destroying them, either with full force artillery or by sneaky sniper fire, then you are doing those things to God. No matter how small the person is that you are talking to in your own eyes, and maybe you've reduced this person in your life so that they are the least to you, But Jesus says the least represent the king. So it doesn't matter how small you've made them. They represent the king to you. So Paul then comes alongside James's negative warning here with some positive imperatives. He says in Ephesians 4, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. See? See what's important here? (laughs) When you're talking to other people, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Oh boy, that sounds different. Sounds better right? Let all bitterness, that's resentment. You've got to put resentment away. Don't bring resentment into your conversations with people. 
Wrath and anger. Don't be forceful. Don't be brutal with your language. Clamor. That's a lack of peace. Don't just go on and on and on with your words. You know, just driving people down and giving them no peace in their life. And slander, false accusations. Don't accuse people of things that they're not guilty of. Don't take your accusations so far that it's no longer even based in reality. And all malice, don't be scheming and don't be wishing harm on people. Don't use your words that way, Paul says, because you'll grieve the Spirit of God. It's an image bearer that you're talking to. And that's James' theological underparenting. We are image bearers of God. And now, the question is, is there a hopeful gospel answer in James? And there actually is, although it's a little bit disguised. James, in this text, as you've noticed, is not offering very much in terms of positive reinforcement here. He's not giving us positive instruction. He's not giving us a lot of gospel hope. It's all framed in the negative at the moment. And in the next week, come back, because next week he's going to actually get to the positive answer. And, uh, but there's a hint of it here that we can get to in the conclusion of this text. Uh, here's the gospel remedy that I saw as James concluded. And again, it's a little tricky because he says it in the negative. He says, does a spring pour forth From the same opening, both fresh and salt water. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. The gospel remedy that James has in mind here is that like should produce like. And like cannot produce unlike. And if we go back to Genesis again to get this underpinning, James shows us the direction that our hope lies. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. You see, God designed it so that a kind of thing produces the same kind of thing. Always. You don't get olives from a fig tree. You don't get figs from a grapevine. James says like should produce like. It shouldn't produce something different than what it is. You don't get pure speech from an impure person. But that is also good news. Because like really does produce like. And our gospel hope is based on this fundamental fact. What we produce springs forth from what we are. And what we are being made into is into the likeness of Christ. If we are made righteous, then we will produce righteousness. Because like produces like. And here's the good news of the gospel. That if right now we are producing unrighteousness, if right now we are producing malice and we are producing slander and anger and selfishness, then we can change who we are. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And then John says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we will know that when he appears we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. You see, here's the gospel message. James, again, sort of gets to it obliquely in the negative, but the reality of the gospel message and the gospel hope in this text is that like produces like, and God is making us into the likeness of Christ. It's not perfected yet. We won't be fully like Jesus until he appears, but we are being made into his likeness, and praise God, like produces like. And so if I want my words to produce righteousness, then I will allow the gospel to transform me more and more into the image of Christ. And as we are transformed into the image of Christ, then like will produce like. 
James is pretty much cribbing right off of his half-brother's notes here, because Jesus said it this way. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Like, come on, James. Like, you barely changed the words. I think you'd get caught for plagiarism. Jesus says, well, you, recognize, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. You see, the gospel message is that like produces like, and we are being made like Jesus. That's our gospel hope. Our gospel hope that James perceives is that God changes us, and by changing us, he changes our tongue, and changing us and our tongue, he changes our words, and what it produces then becomes very different. The the gospel message is that God heals the hurts that we have done with our words. The, The gospel message and the gospel hope is that God forgives the sins that we have committed, So whatever false accusations we've made, whatever blame that we have shifted, whatever anger we've put onto people, whatever malice we have hatched, whatever selfishness or manipulation we have done with our words, the gospel is is that God can change us and he can heal those things. Words reveal that God is at work and what he is producing in you. And so we step back, and whether we're the doctor with the tongue depressor or whether we're the parent measuring at the doorpost of the kitchen, James says, this is the measure of your maturity. What words are you using, and how are you using them, and what are they producing? And again, we're never going to be perfect. I'm going to say careless things. I'm going to say angry things. I'll sometimes say selfish things. But we should be able to measure by our words as Christians the transformation that's taking place inside. You see, the words on the outside reveal what's going on inside. And so as Christians, we understand that words matter. Every word we speak, we will be judged by. Every person we're talking to is an image bearer of God. Every relationship that we have, whether it's our marriage, our family, our friendships, our work, whatever it is, is steered by and set direction by our words or set on fire by our words if we're not careful. So there is no situation where we can ever say that words are not important because they reflect who we are as Christians. They reflect how we treat image bearers of God and they either please or grieve the Holy Spirit. If we take a sneak peek ahead to next week, we can see in just a few sentences, James is going to start to describe what should be produced. And he's going to sound a lot like Paul here. He's going to use words like pure and peaceable and gentle and open to reason and merciful and good fruit. But we're not there at that lesson yet. We're not at next week yet. So don't go there just yet. Because what James wants the church to consider first are these illustrations. Consider what the produce of your mouth is telling others about the faith that you have and the love that you have for Jesus and the progress that the gospel is making in our lives. The question James is asking of this young church who he's saying, don't be too eager to be rushing out and becoming teachers yet. You're not quite full grown. He's asking, are you mature? Are you fully grown in your likeness of Christ? Or do your words tell us that you have a long way to go? From one degree of glory to another, Let's allow our words to show our progress in the faith with everyone in our lives, every area of our life, not just on Sunday morning, not just when we're talking to Christians. Let every part of our life 
be transformed by our transformed words. Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you for this strong lesson from James and the dynamic and vibrant imagery that he uses to get his point across. Um, He's a good teacher. And when teachers shift gears and start using different language and different ways of teaching and they start using certain words that they don't use anywhere else, that is a giant exclamation mark for us to take note. And James has done that here. He has used the most vibrant and vivid images to get this into our hearts. And he's made it as clear as possible how fundamentally important this is to our very being as image bearers of God, that what we say matters. And as Christians, if we really want to claim to be mature and growing in the gospel, then we better get control of our tongues through the Spirit of God and through your grace and your mercy. And so, Father, I pray that for myself. I pray that for everyone here who right now, just coming back, like just know everyone here right now who's experiencing the trauma of what words have done in their life. And it has lasted years and years sometimes. The trauma of one meeting, one argument, or maybe just three or four. And there is mountains of work to get undone. Father, I I just pray for me. I pray for everyone here who's experiencing that. We know that words matter. And so, Father, help us to pray for our tongues. Help us to pray for our words. Help us to pray for your Holy Spirit to lead and guide us first and foremost in what we say and let everything else flow from that and let your healing come. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.